I'm glad to welcome you. I do have to say before I jump in that given the topics tonight, you may go out with some sadness. On the other hand, you probably figured this out anyway. I'm just going to add a little, that's all. Uh, very quickly on our announcements, these evenings are brought to you by three organizations, the Judson Memorial Church, in which you are currently located, the Left Forum, which produces that annual event that I think some of you went to a month or so ago at the beginning of June, and Democracy at Work, that produces the actual evening uh, each time that it happens, that also produces a video that goes out uh, around the world. And I'm very pleased to let you know that we average between 70 and 100,000 views around the world of what you're about to hear. Uh, that's the level of interest and uh, hunger, if, if I can use that word, for the kinds of analysis uh, that we try to produce. I also have, very quickly, uh, a few announcements, and these are as much for the audience that's going to view this on the internet as for all of you. One of the best ways that you can support us is to subscribe to our YouTube channel. If you watch anything we do, and we put a great deal of material up on YouTube every week, it's really important that you just subscribe at the bottom of the channel. It uh, translates into all kinds of concrete benefits that enable us to do what we're doing. So if you're watching and you're not yet subscribed to our channel, hit the button that tells you how to do that, and also the little bell that will let you know when anything's on there that you might want to take a look at when we add it. Very simple to do, doesn't cost anything, um, but it helps us enormously. Uh, we want to know, want you also to know that um, this series is also on the Patreon uh, website. For those of you not familiar with it, that's a way of, of people who have a, a buck or more a month that they can contribute uh, to be supportive that way. And it also provides access to materials that are not available any other way. So if you're interested, particularly if you want to let other people share whatever it is you get out of these evenings, just go to Patreon, it's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, patreon.com slash G-C-L-E-U, Global Capitalism Live Economic Update, which is what we call this. Um, if you are a fan of Economic Update, the weekly radio and television program that we produce, we have a new format. You can view the entire episodes on YouTube. You can download also our new listening apps on Apple Podcasts and Google Play. Sorry to go through all of this with you, but that's the way you have to do this nowadays. We've also launched a Democracy at Work store. If you are a fan of mugs and t-shirts and stuff like that with interesting radical things on them that can provoke your friends or family into... <laughs> rage. Um, just go to our website, democracy at work slash store, and all of that is available to you. And finally, we produce a regular podcast called Puerto Rico Forward, produced by people in Puerto Rico that we work with. And you can find that also uh, through our websites, and you can subscribe to those podcasts also on Apple Podcasts and Google Play. Okay. Let's jump in, as we usually do, with a few shorter items 
that are nonetheless very important before we get to the main topics. Um, my eye fell upon a small announcement made last week that has lessons for all of us. The announcement was made by the Goldman Sachs Corporation. I'm sure you've all heard of them um, and hold them dear in your hearts. And they announced with great pride, I believe it was on the 3rd of July, so it's a bit older, 3rd of July, uh, an addition to their board of directors. Very proud they were to announce that Drew, D-R-E-W, Faust, F-A-U-S-T. Now, of course, Faust raises all kinds of images, and I want you to keep those in your mind as we proceed. Who is Drew Faust? First of all, Drew Faust is a female. Drew is usually, I think, a male name, but in this case, Drew is a female. Uh, and she ended her stint as the president of Harvard University on the 30th of June, and it took her two days to make the transition to be on the board of the Goldman Sachs Corporation. She is already also on the board of the Staples <coughs> Company a company that sells things to universities. Of course, that's purely a coincidence. She is now, therefore, on the board, and I wanted you to feel good about that. She will get, as a payment, uh, a one-shot payment of $500,000. I mean, it's helpful to work for Go Goldman Sachs. And she'll get, on top of, on top of that, an annual retainer of $75,000, for which she will occasionally have to go to meetings and at least look like she's not sleeping. Okay? Which is what many board meetings uh, require you to do. Um, I took the liberty of reading her valedictory speech, her last speech at Harvard, which is published in the latest edition of the Harvard Magazine. If you've never looked at Harvard Magazine, I urge you to do it, because what you will find in Harvard Magazine will correct images you have of what that institution is, because it, it it's, has the depth of Look Magazine, or <laughs> Reader's Digest, or other <laughs> elaborate items. Anyway, in her speech, she um, talks a great deal about learning and her commitment to learning, I really don't mean to ridicule her, although the opportunities are many here. Um, but here's interesting what she has to talk about the world and Harvard and the importance of it. Uh, by the way, for those of you not familiar, if you go to Harvard, one of the first things they tell you, I guess I should mention this, I went there too, to reveal this, I should reveal this, transparency. Well, I'll tell you a story. When I went, we had an orientation as a freshman. We came a week before the school actually started, which a lot of colleges do that, to help the new freshmen. The women were also called freshmen. They didn't, at that time, protest. I presume they would now. Um, so the freshmen got together in a big hall, and the president greeted us. And uh, here's what he said. I mean, he said many things, but this was the one that stuck in my mind. Look, by the way, he said, look at the man to your left. Uh, there were women there, too. 
Look at the man to your right. He was used to Harvard. He had been there for a while, and they had just gone over from being only male to being co-ed and all that. He said, one of them will be a senator. One of them will be a captain of industry. And what I want you all to understand, he said, I'm 17 and a half years of age at this moment, is that we do not educate you. We are preparing you to run the world. 17 and a half years old. When you go to Harvard, you already have a large head. Now your head gets really, you can't get in and out of the room, you know, because you've been told um, crap like that. Anyway. What? Yes, I, I gather that the Supreme Court will now have a predominance of those people. Yes, yes, it has its grain of truth, and grain is all they need at Harvard to make an entire bread. Um, anyway, there's not a word in her statement here about capitalism. I, I found it extraordinary. She talks about education. She talks about learning. She talks about the mind. She talks, she talks about a lot of very important things, and, and I know they're important because she keeps telling us these are important things. But she hasn't got a word to say about capitalism. It's not an issue. It's not a topic. It's not a reference point. She talks about the ups and downs of the economy without giving the economy a name or a label or an adjective, which is what you learn to do if you go to Harvard. Not a word. Then she boasts. She boasts about having record, raised a record amount of money to be contributed to Harvard. Giving money to Harvard is a replay of the old claim, Coles to Newcastle. That was a joke because Newcastle was where the coal was mined and nobody in their right mind would bring coal to Newcastle because it already had a lot of it. And giving money to Harvard is the same absurdity. But carefully done, she thanks everybody for giving a lot of money. She doesn't want to recognize, as I hope all of you do, what it means that billions are given to Harvard. The billions that are given to Harvard are given by people who use that contribution to reduce their tax liability, because that's the law in the United States. So if billions of dollars were given to Harvard, it means billions of dollars that might otherwise have been paid in taxes, if other uses had been found for that money, thereby giving the government the ability to make loans to students and fix the roads and build it. So those are not there. Harvard, which doesn't need it, got billions in such a way that those of the society who need it won't have it. At this point, if I had more time, we would stop and I'd play the Harvard song for you. <laughs> All right. The bottom line is, to coin a phrase from an old sociologist many years ago, some of you may still read his work, uh, C. Wright Mills was his name, and he coined this phrase, the power elite. And by that he meant the people who run the big industries and the people who run the military and the big politicians. And he also included the heads of the universities, the people who together make it all happen, or as that fellow said to us, run the world but they run it at your expense. And they celebrate it in such a way that we can all read about it, carefully having sanitized every part of this that represents how they rip off the society 
in order to create the wonderful rooms and the leather chairs and the elegance. I learned to drink sherry when I was a student, having not had that pleasure in my family of origin. I learned the importance of having a leather patch on the corner of your jacket, not because you needed it or it was worn away, but because it was a sign that you belonged in a place like that. And clearly, as you can tell from what I do, it didn't work with me. <laughs> okay. They tried. They did try, but it didn't work. Harvard. You can put lipstick on a pig. It is still a pig. Okay. Next. In Massachusetts, which is where Harvard is located, uh, in Massachusetts, something else played out over the last few weeks, and I wanted to talk to you about it because it's also remarkable in the lessons uh, it gives. Massachusetts, even though it's a quite wealthy state and pretty liberal, uh, had a rough time because some liberally types, progressive types, proposed a tax on millionaires, by which they meant if you earned more than a million dollars per year, you would have to pay a sales tax. There's already a sales tax on income of about 5.1%, and it would have risen just for those who earn over a million, which is a tiny percentage of the people of Massachusetts. It would have risen to 9.1%, would have raised $2 billion, and would have been applied to the problems of the education and transportation systems in Massachusetts, who are, which are in trouble. Okay, um, that was defeated. Corporations went to work to defeat that. Um, the power elite, the rich, uh, Drew Faust was busy and so could not weigh in on that particular issue. For some reason, nobody can understand. That's a joke, I'm trying to make jokes. Okay, good. Um, and the argument I wanted to raise with you the argument given by the rich was that if you pass the millionaire's tax, by the way, we had that in New York too, Mr. Cuomo killed that, um, one of the many contributions he has made. Um, the argument was made if you tax the millionaires, they will run away. They will move. Now, before I explain to you why that's nonsense, before that, I want everyone to understand what, what that means. You're saying that you are very wealthy and the majority of people believe that if you have that much wealth, you ought to pay a tax that it reflects your ability to pay. The response of those who are, who are confronted with this is to threaten you. You do that to me, I will hurt you. You get it? You under, it's a threat. Now, it ought to be an interesting thing if a, a state is confronted by a decision, democratically arrived at, to levy a tax on a certain part of the population, which we already do, now on this one, that they threaten you with leaving. Now, one way a state could respond is to say, oh, you're threatening us. We'll do you one better. You leave the state and do, you will never come back here again. 
and we will do this, and we will, why not? Just a game of threats. But instead, the politicians folded. Because it turns out they don't have a stomach for that kind of a fight. And so they cave, and they use that argument to their own constituents to justify why they didn't vote for that. A book has been written, a book called The Myth of the Millionaire Tax Flight, How Place Still Matters uh, to the Rich. It was written and published by Stanford University sociology professor Christabel Young. And it proves that time after time, when you've raised taxes on the rich, they've gone exactly nowhere. Turns out there are lots of reasons why they're located where they are and the tax they have to pay since they're very rich people, is a tiny matter for them. It's big for the state, it's small for them, which would be an argument to do it, except it has become, in this obverse, upside-down way, a justification not to do it. But if that were all, I wouldn't have told you about it. This happens so often in America. One more example, do you really need it? But it gets better. The Massachusetts retailers have been worried because there is a successful movement in Massachusetts to raise the minimum wage in retail from $11 to $15 an hour. As you know, it's all over the country. Massachusetts is the kind of state where this is going to go. And so, how to deal with this? How did the retail employers, the big box stores, the fast food restaurants, how do they deal with a threat? And you might think it, well, they harass the organizers. I'm sure they do. They threaten the workers. No question about it. But I want you to know about some other kinds of strategies that they use, because you live in a country that's run this way. The mass retailers organized and collected signatures on a petition to get a ballot issue on the next election. Here's what it was. It would reduce the sales tax dramatically in the state. Why did they do that? Because they knew it would pass overwhelmingly. If you go into the booth, if you're an average citizen, and the question is, would you like a lower tax rather than the one you have? Uh, You're going to win that one. Everybody understands that. Why were the retailers doing that? Because it was a further threat to the politicians. You're going to all be screwed because... It'll pass, and you won't have the money you've had before, and you're going to have to make cutbacks, and you can kiss your political careers goodbye. And why was this done? In order to go to the legislature, which they did, and say, well, um, we don't want you to pass a law raising the minimum wage for the retail workers. And if you don't, we will withdraw our plan for a referendum on the sales tax so you won't be squeezed in your political career. And that was the deal that was worked out. There will not be a vote on reducing the sales tax. And the law about the minimum wage got changed. Not only did it get stretched out over more years before it gets to 15, I believe it's now 2023, you wouldn't want to rush giving people minimum wage. 
what idea that would be, but they added a little kicker as part of the negotiations. No more time and a half on Sundays and holidays. Massachusetts is a liberal state. God help you if you live in an unliberal state. Okay. Next. The tunnels that connect this city to New Jersey are, as you all know, an enormous pleasure to travail and to work through. The lighting, the air, the beauty along the wall, it's, 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 it's just, the world comes here just to experience the Holland Tunnel. I mean, it's just, mm. In any case, if you haven't noticed, these things are falling apart. They didn't do real well with Sandy, and, and they've been doing less well ever since. The L train is going to be interrupted to Brooklyn because they have to fix the disaster that that is. So there's been a $30 billion gateway infrastructure project planned for years now to fix all of that, to make us have that. Uh, but we can't get it because Mr. Trump and Mr. Schumer can't work out the deal needed to give enough money to enough of their respective associates to make the deal go through. Please keep that in mind the next time you hear someone explain to you how and why capitalism is an efficient economic system. Okay, now the two lesser topics for today. Since last we met, the Janus decision of the Supreme Court. They're very important for you to all understand what that's about. I'm always distressed when I discover that labor law is as little understood as, as it apparently is. So let's review, make sure we're all on the same page. Under the law of the United States, particularly coming out of the Taft-Hartley Act of 1947, it became the law in the United States that any benefit won for workers at any workplace by the action of the union that was there would have to be given to every worker there whether or not that worker was in the union whether or not that worker supported the union, whether or not that worker contributed dues to the union, like everybody else in the union, whether or not that worker went out on strike when the union felt that was the way to achieve the wage increase or whatever it is they were going at. In other words, that law created what in mathematics is sometimes called a free rider kind of situation because every worker was being told by that law, you can get all the benefits, why pay the freight? Why pay for it? Why pay dues? Why go to meetings? Why go on strike? Just think of it. Your fellow workers go out on strike, lose the strike pay for five weeks while they're out on strike. You cross the picket line every day, smiling, and eating their lunch. And at the end, when the strike finally gets something, you have to get exactly what every other worker gets. Even though the other workers sacrificed to get it, you didn't. It's a kind of law that shows you that the government is clearly neutral in the struggle between capital and labor, clearly helping you, and so forth. Anyway, this was very bad for the labor movement. Certainly had something to do with the collapse uh, around that, those years, late 40s, early 50s. I think roughly a third of Americans were members of unions. 
Today it's about 10%. I mean, and the line is like a straight decline, literally over 50 years. But a compromise later on was arrived at, a little compromise. It, it gets called agency fee. It has other names too, but it's basically the following. Okay, the union said, you don't have to join the union. You don't have to come to meet, you know, you, you can have nothing to do with the union. But since you get the benefits, you do have to pay a fee to the union because of all the work it does to process grievances and, and argue for proper precedence so you're protected and the laws and the rules of the contract are enforced and all the rest. An agency fee. You don't have to join the union. You don't have to support the union. But the you have to. The unions agreed to that? The unions, yeah, they fought for it. Because it was better than what they had. Before that, they didn't have that at all. You know, nothing. This way they got some money paid in. Correct me if I'm wrong, Charlie. But um, they got some money paid in. Uh, at least that's something. Yes, so the unions agreed to it. What the Supreme Court did was to take that away. The Janus decision said, and I want you to understand the reasoning of the court. And this is the reasoning before Mr. Kavanaugh joins the court. It will be worse afterwards. But before he's there, the reasoning goes as follows. Unions use the money they collect for a variety of things, including, including, supporting candidates, uh, favoring legislation, supporting whatever. And that means that a worker who doesn't agree with what the union is doing, saying, is being forced to pay for something he doesn't agree with. I want you all to take a deep breath. Can you imagine being paid, being required to pay for something you don't agree. It's downright un-American, said the court. We can't have that. So we can't require workers who get all the benefits by law that the union wins, we can't require them to make a, a payment of an agency fee either, which will cripple, or it'll hurt, many public sector unions, which is where this is aimed anyway, make their finances much more difficult. They're going to have to collect the money themselves in some way. It can't be withheld from the check the way this was done before, and so on. But I want you to realize the, the argument was not that there was unfairness in giving benefits to people who don't contribute to pay for them. You'd be hard-pressed to make that argument. So that was dropped. That was just ignored. It was a freedom of speech decision. It's the freedom not to have to pay for something you disagree with. So in, in the spirit, yes, sir. Good. That's one example. I'm going to give you another one. The federal government in the United States subsidizes every church, every synagogue, every mosque, I want to include them all, so I, I'm sure that you're offended by at least one of those. <laughs> you are required to pay taxes. And part of that money goes to provide free police protection, free fire protection, 
cleaning of the air, cleaning of the streets, educating of the children. Everything that the people in those institutions get is tax-free. Now let me give you a better one. Did you understand what I told you about Harvard? But Harvard is one of the largest recipients of government grants for all kinds of things. That's your money. Drew Faust lives in a house, very elegant in Cambridge, that you help pay for, and I want you to take pride in that. <laughs> you can't visit it, but you are required to pay for it. And if what Drew Faust says is something you don't like, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Well, guess what? Donald Trump's home is built by people that go to work every day. We built that place. Yeah. We own that place. Right. And he makes money off of that place. And many other places. At our expense. Yeah. Correct. That's the way it works. That's the way it works. Anyway, that Supreme Court decision is very important because it really is a blow, one of a long list, but a blow against the labor movement. And it was pushed by right-wing think tanks, by the Republican Party as an institution. And for that, you need to also understand a little bit of the economics of that, which are not about labor unions. The economics of that is that one of the major financial contributors to many, many Democratic Party efforts are, are unions. Unions provide money. Unions provide staff, people who help, a kind of an in-kind contribution, if you like. And the Republicans, who don't get money from unions very much, they get monies from the other side, rather better, they have always wanted to weaken the financial base of the Democratic Party against whom they run. And by doing this, they weaken the flow of money into the unions, which weakens how much the unions can help the Democratic Party. For the Republicans, that's all this is about. Labor, schmaber, free speech, they don't know how to spell it. They know they're weakening their political adversary and just in time for the November election, where they hope it may make a significant difference in how that comes out. The other quick item, the elections in Mexico. For those of you who don't pay attention, you really should. Mexico is a very important country, a very large country, a very important economic thing, and a neighbor of ours as a nation. What goes on there is extremely important. It has been governed by a very small group of extremely wealthy families for a long time. And they've been able to stave off and prevent challenges. There were several in the 1930s. There were important ones. And the, the fellow who won a few days ago has tried before. It was not his first uh, effort. And he's had a, a, literally an election stolen from him. He did win, actually, before but they used some maneuvers to keep him out of it. The conditions in Mexico have gotten so bad over the last 20 years particularly that the ruling party, which has been ruling there for forever, um, got stuck with a bad reputation for having let things get as bad as you are. There are large parts of Mexico where you don't go. Or if you do, you don't come back. 
or parts of you come back and the other parts stay, um, which is not a good sign usually. So the people got angry enough to vote for a kind of an older hero who was a bit more progressive once and might be again. I'm not here to argue that he will or won't. Nobody knows. He certainly spent the first few days after his election reassuring the power elite there he's not going to do much. I, why he did that, I don't know. Maybe that's him. Maybe that's a clever maneuver. Time will tell. I just want everyone to understand that you can make the mass of people angry over a long period of time, and then they go in the leftward direction. I only want you to understand that because you live in a country where that anger that has accumulated has gone in a rightward direction. It doesn't have to. It doesn't have to. And we will see, and I will follow that uh, with you. So now let's get to the... You made a remark several years ago, which I still remember, and you said that all these efforts at reform in a sort of democratic country will always fail because those reforms put certain laws in effect, but they, but they never take away the money and the power from the elite establishment. And so 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, they undo them all, and then you're in the same position again. It happened here, it happened in every single Democratic, in Chile, Guatemala, Nicaragua. Mexico, absolutely, absolutely. As long as you don't change that basic thing, you pass a law, you pass a reform, you pass a regulation, but you've left in place the people who have every incentive, having fought against that reform, having fought against the regulation, having lost, so the regulation passes, but if you don't take away from them their position as gathering into their hands the wealth of the society, you're leaving them with the weapon and the incentive to use it to undo what you've just done, which is what they do. It's what they do. They've always done that. The notion that you can make them piecemeal adjustments and reforms and somehow they'll stay there? What? What do you think? The people who didn't want that, they all went to sleep? They all said, gee, we lost, so that's it. We won't try again? No. They, uh, guess what? They know very well that a regulation passed is not a regulation enforced. That a regulation passed is not a regulation that can't be amended, that can't be weakened, that can't be repealed. In 1933, after the worst collapse of capitalism in its history, we passed a banking act, Glass-Steagall it was called, it prevented commercial banks from risky investments with depositors' money, because that was considered to have, uh, the banks, ne not for one minute, they fought against it, they were defeated because of the mood of the country in 1933, which was very anti-capitalist and even more anti-bank, even more than this country is now. So that law was pushed. The banks immediately went to work. First, they evaded it. They set up banking subsidiaries in, in the Caribbean that weren't subject to American law, so they could do it, and then this and did that, and then they weakened it. And finally, when they saw that the political wind had shifted in the 1990s, they came with the last step. Repeal it. Erase it. And in 19, whatever it was, 1994, or whatever year it was, the, the Congress repealed the Glass-Steagall Act, and all it needed was the president's signature on undoing the New Deal. 
And that was signed by Bill Clinton. For those of you who imagine that a Clinton is going to fix anything, a shoe. I, I, I can't help you if, if, you're, if you're there. It, just, it requires an, an amnesia about American history that even those of us committed to that kind of amnesia as a sign of patriotism can't quite manage. You know, not so easy. So we will see. Let me turn then to what I hope on your minds, because it certainly is everywhere around us, which is the spectacle of Mr. Trump. Um, literally over the last two days, for those of you that have missed it, he has insulted uh, Mrs. Merkel in Germany. He has insulted Mrs. May in England. He does have a problem with women, in case you hadn't noticed this. Earlier in his campaign, you probably noticed it, um, he continues to have this problem. But I want to talk about sort of the larger picture of which he's a part, something which the media, in my judgment, don't do. So here we go. Capitalism is a highly unstable system. I want to remind you, you have to keep this in your mind. Every four to seven years, wherever capitalism has settled in, it has what is politely called a business cycle. On average, four to seven years. It's an average, so sometimes it'll go 11 years, and sometimes only two years between cycles. There's other words, recession, depression, downturn, catastrophe, crisis, I could go on. We have a lot of words in all languages for this because capitalism produces this with the regularity of, of, of a disease. And that's a problem because periodically millions of people are thrown out of work. Businesses shut down or cut back. Governments have no money to maintain functions. I mean, it, it's traumatic, not just for the people who lose their jobs, but for their husbands and wives, for their children, for their neighbors, for their relatives, for their communities. Wow. Some, some places get hit so bad with, a, with one of these that they never recover. That is, the, the downturn, instead of having an upturn later, which they're supposed to do and they often do, sets in motion so many secondary effects that they never can get back up. Detroit never got up. Camden, New Jersey. I'm, I'm mentioning places you, would, you really should visit if you never have because nothing I say can get across to you what an hour or two riding around these places. Be sure your windows are rolled up. Um, Cleveland, Camden, my hometown, Youngstown, Ohio, places like that. Places like that. Awful places. For decades. For decades and decades. So economic instability is very dangerous for capitalism. It has tried for the 300 years that it has been growing and spreading around the world. Capitalism has tried to deal with that instability over and over again. The most famous example, Keynes, the economist in Britain, and Keynesian economics, and Keynesian monetary policy, and Keynesian fiscal policy, and all of the apparatus, trying in every way, and his was not the first nor the last, trying to prevent these cycles. Every effort to do that has failed. Let me do that again. 
every effort to overcome the cyclical instability of capitalism has failed. That's why we're in 2008, the collapse we had just did. Proof positive that we didn't fix it. It was busted badly. Okay? The second wonderful quality of this system is its tendency to inequality. Left to its own devices, capitalism makes the rich richer and the rest of us, well, you know. You know. If you needed the proof, Mr. Piketty, a very well-established French economist, wrote a book in 2014 called Capital in the 21st Century, in which he literally does the work, 600 pages, documenting time after time, place after place, how capitalism makes it more and more unequal until, this is the absolute situation, there's a political backlash, until the mass of people finding themselves falling further and further behind blow up somehow and demand, and then it gets fixed for a while, either the inequality stops getting worse or it's even reversed for a while, in the 1930s, it was reversed in this country for a while. The inequality of the 1920s was much worse than what we had in the 30s and 40s. They did reverse it. The New Deal did that because a mass of Americans demanded it, and they got it. And then what happens? Well, it's again your point. Since you haven't changed the basic system, you've left the power and the wealth in the hands of the same small business owners, they wait until the upset of the masses has played itself out a little bit, and then they go to work to undo it. You, most of you, have been living through the last several decades of the United States, which is the undoing of the New Deal. All the protections you got have been taken away, one after the other. You're barely holding on to Social Security, and don't bet on that. But most of the rest, like the Janus decision, all being taken away. Okay. One of the key roles that's played by politics in a capitalist system is to try to cope with this. Cope with this instability, these periodic breakdowns that make no sense, that nobody wants, that create vast suffering and dislocation. Cope with that. And by cope with that, I mean... Get people to accept it. Get people to live through it. Get people not to turn against capitalism on the grounds of, what are we having a system like this for? Some of you have heard me, because it works with my students in my classes. I tell the following joke at this point. If you lived with a person as unstable as capitalism, you would have moved out long ago. But you live with this lunacy, knowing, because if you pay any attention, you know that in your lifetime, you're going to have downturns. And you may think you're never going to be hit by them. But that's really naive. You will, directly or indirectly. Everybody is. You too. And it may really hurt when it gets to you. So the, the politics have to handle it. And I don't have enough time, otherwise I would like to. So I'm going to be very brief now. When the crisis hit in 2007 and 8, here was a doozy. It quickly became clear to the people who run this society and the rest of us watching 
that this wasn't your run-of-the-mill up-down. Lasts a year or two. Okay, this was a bad one. This was a really bad one. It wasn't as bad as the one in the 1930s, but it came in second. A global crash of capital. You, you have to worry now. Like you always have to worry with a downturn. And here, here, here comes the solution. This may upset some of you, but just follow the logic of it. The solution was Obama. The solution was a tilt to the left, not very far left, but a community organizer. Remember the early message of Mr. Obama? Community organizer, a progressive something from the Midwest, Illinois. What would he do? Well, he would fix it all. He would roar into office blaming Mr. Bush and the Republicans for the catastrophe that everybody by then was feeling. 2008, remember? And he would sweep into office, which he did, and he would be the Mr. Fix-It. He would fix it. Well, here's what, to be blunt, happened. First thing he did was pass an enormous, remember, stimulus program. He basically did the Democratic version, that is, huge boost in government spending, no change in taxes. So the government is suddenly pouring money into the economy to try to do classic Democratic Party stimulus response. He did that. What else did he do to change the economy? Well, to be blunt with you, nothing. <laughs> nothing. He passed a health care bill that gave health insurance to people who didn't have it. Important thing to do. A progressive step. But not a, it didn't change the economic system in our society. didn't fix anything about it. In fact, the hallmark of that health bill was, yeah, he got some more people covered. But he did absolutely nothing to change the absurd amount of money Americans have to spend for their health care. In fact, he solidified that in his program because if he wasn't going to change it, the Republicans certainly wouldn't. And so it's cement now that we pay more than any other country on this planet for our health care, even though the health results we get are mediocre. But he did something else that was the political job he was there for. He made sure that African-Americans and white liberals who liked him wouldn't make any trouble for this system for eight years. They didn't want to embarrass him. They didn't want to make him responsible. They didn't want to do the, the work of the Republican enemies. No, 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 they weren't going to do that. So, stasis. No anger exploding, no demand, nothing like what happened in the 1930s when the American working class, the same people, just their parents and grandparents, the same people mostly, rose up and demanded big changes at the expense of wealthy people. None of that happened with Mr. Obama's polish and well-spoken ability to lead and comfort us all that he was a good guy with at least compared to what has come since, he certainly was. Um, but he did the job. He kept the lid on. 
He kept the lid on. The problem was, since he didn't fix anything, it all got worse. The anger of people falling further behind, the crappy job, the job that now pays less, the job that has fewer benefits, the job where you don't even know one week to the next what hours you're going to have to put in and what they're going to take out of it for what... Uh, the, the impossible degradation of the working people of the country kept right on going. So you were teaching Americans a lesson. You just voted for a liberal, progressive, sort of Democrat, sort of, with promises. You're not getting anything fixed, and your situation is deteriorating. Of course you're not going to vote for another one like that. White or black, what difference does it make? You've just been given a lesson. Turning to the left, even the little bit of left Obama represented, got you nothing. So are you surprised then that the next time they get a chance, they're kind of doubly angry because they've been had, you know, they've been betrayed. They hoped for something. Remember Mr. Obama's slogan? Hope and change. Remember? Hope and change. Okay. Let's suppose a lot of Americans took that seriously, which they probably did. Well, you smashed the hope because you didn't deliver the change. Okay, and now you're going to get people what? They want somebody outrageous. Mr. Trump fits the bill. He's always been outrageous. Nobody likes him. Look at his wife. She can't stand the guy. <laughs> you can see it in her face. Even the elite in the city don't like him, doesn't let him in. He's been the outsider. He, he doesn't get it. He, he's a bully. He's all the things you all know. You don't need me to go through it with you. But that's exactly what people wanted. They wanted the guy who's the outsider. They all feel outside. You know, there was a special torture Obama did in the last part of his second term. It wasn't just him. But he presided over this language of recovery. The American economy is in recovery. You know what that does? It says to every person whose life isn't recovering, there's something wrong with me. Everybody else is recovering. You're making a double pain. Not only are they not recovering, but they feel bad that somehow everybody else is and there's just something wrong with you. You don't have the right education. You didn't go to school. You haven't worked real hard. You're not a nice person. And you have body odor. That's why. There's something wrong with you to explain why this recovery, which is lifting everybody, doesn't carry you. It's cruelty. It's right up there with, I don't know, separating children from their parents at the border. Only it didn't get the attention that that gets. For some reason, I don't quite figure out. So Mr. Trump comes in, and what is his job? Well, first, he does the Obama trick. He produces a tax cut to end all tax cuts last December. There he is. First year in office, reaches a climax, and he does what? He delivers a multi-hundreds of billions of dollars in tax relief to corporations. 
the very things that have been doing better than anybody else for the last 30 years. He, gets, he gives a tax cut to people who don't need it. They didn't even ask many of them. He cuts the taxes from 35% corporate profits tax, 35% to 21%. That's a large cut, producing hundreds of billions of dollars of money that these corporations now have. They don't have to pay in taxes. And he promised, of course, like an Obama type, that this will mean rising wages and jobs. If you read the financial press, particularly the last two or three weeks, let me summarize for you. The overwhelming bulk of that money has been used on what's called stock buybacks. What the corporations are doing is taking the money they don't have to buy, uh, they don't have to pay in taxes, and they're going into the stock market and they buy their own shares. It's very important. So take, for example, General Motors, the board of directors, and I'm not talking about them in particular, it's just an example. Board of directors now has an extra $5 billion in taxes they don't have to give to Uncle Sam. So they go into the market and they buy shares of, of General Motors from whoever owns them. And of course, with a sudden surge of purchasing, the stock prices go up. And why is that interesting? Because the executives of General Motors, their payments and bonuses are linked to the performance of the stock. You get this? This is not a very hard science, this business. This is called thievery. If you do this, you're going to go to jail or the equivalent. But this is all legal. So they buy and the stock market goes up and we all say, oh, see, recovery. No, 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 you morons. It's the money that isn't going to the government, which therefore hasn't got money to spend for all the things we need, that is instead being used to boost the stock market. One percent of people who own stock in this country owns two-thirds of all the stock. That's good for the one percent. That's who owns the stock market. It's good for the executives whose salaries are hooked into the value of shares. Yeah, there was a time. There are countries in the world where it's not allowed or it's limited. Not here. We have freedom. <laughs> we have freedom. So what does Mr. Trump do? He does an Obama. He gives an enormous boost to the economy. That's why unemployment is low right now. There's a flush sense of lots of money, but the corporations are not hiring very many, and they're not certainly not raising wages. They're buying back the stock. You know why? When you ask them, which the business press does, we're not going to invest in producing more goods and services. We can't sell what we now produce. There's no money in investing this tax savings. But that was the rationale given by the Trump administration. We're going to give them the because they're job creators. No, they're not. They never were. You only create jobs if you think you can sell what those jobs produce. They know they can't. Partly they can't because others in the world are doing a better job. Partly they can't because the American wages have gone nowhere in 30 years, and so there's no purchasing power here. The latest statistics indicate, released this morning, consumer credit is taking off again. Americans are once again in the face of no wage increase, making that terrible decision, I'm going to go into debt. 
not just for the students for school, but now the general credit, the revolving credit, credit cards, auto loans, all the rest. So what is Mr. Trump's plan? Like Mr. Obama, he's not going to change anything. There's nothing he's proposing to change anything. Corporations will do their thing. They'll pay lower taxes than before, but that's not a basic change. That's just more money in their pocket. So what is he giving to the mass of people if he isn't giving change? He's giving the opposite of what Mr. Obama gave. Obama gave liberal, slightly progressive language about inclusivity and caring about people. You know, you all remember. Mr. Trump has a different song. His song is, I'm tough. I'm bold. I'm going to kick ass around the world. I don't care. I am the disruptor. I am, I'm out to help America. I'm going to make America great again. I am. I, you should all pay attention to me because I am giving you bullshit. But you bought Obama's bullshit. Why don't you buy mine? And you know something? A lot of people are. They're finding it exciting. Yes, their job is no good. Yes, their children have a hard time paying for school. Yes, they don't see any help coming down the road. But look at him. He's telling them where to get off. They have to know. Yelling at NATO and yelling at the WTO and yelling at these foreign leaders and yelling and just... He's yelling, and he's yelling to make things better for me. Mr. Obama said he was trying to make things better for everybody, too. They gave Mr. Obama the benefit of the doubt until they couldn't stand it anymore. And that's the issue, friends. That's the issue for Mr. Trump, too. He cannot deliver anything real. He's got to be tweeting all the time. He's got to capture your interest. He's doing a pretty good job. He's got to capture your attention, your interest. One theater piece after another. He's got to have exciting things with Mr. Putin. He's got to go to the brink of war with North Korea and then get the Nobel Peace Prize for not having the war. <laughs> but this is all really is, it's theater. Mr. Trump has no future unless he can harvest this version of the old Republican game. The Republican game was always big business and a mass of conservative people. You have to weld those two together to make a winning election combination. And the Democrats, They've usually tried to get the working class and then minorities, women, and all of that. Unfortunately, because of Obama in part, but because of the Democratic Party's own evolution, they made no effort to face or to offer an answer to the declining economic circumstances of the mass of the American working class. What they did in the 1930s they didn't do this time. And they lost them. And so they're left with minorities and immigrants and women and liberals, but it's not enough. 
And now their strategy is to wait for the obverse of what the Republicans did. The Republicans waited for the mass of people to become so disaffected from the nothingness that Obama did. They're now hoping that the people will become disaffected with the nothingness Mr. Trump's doing. And they may be right. I'm not here to tell you they're wrong. That's their strategy. That the American people will get disgusted with Mr. Trump and vote in another uh, Clinton or something like that. Or an Obama or something like that. Rather than faith that our politics is a politics in which we clean up or we ask our political instruments to clean up the mess that capitalism makes of so many people's lives. To come up with a solution that is three parts political theater and one part helping the rich in the hope that it trickles down a little bit. It's the old trickle-down business, it's all it is. There's nothing new here. Just like there was nothing new really in Obama. There's nothing new in Trump. These are variations on the same. But, let me end it with this. I'm going to respond to some questions. It's always possible that these things spin out of control. Nobody here should please do not understand me as saying that anything here is under control. Mr. Trump is trying to survive politically with the cards he can play, given who he is and who his supporters are. Just like Mr. Obama did with a somewhat different hand. Neither of them is in control of this situation. These tariffs, this absurd game, it's worth a couple of, of minutes before I do the question. A tariff. You all know what a tariff is. It's just another name for a tax. It's the name you give a tax when it's a tax on a particular thing, namely an object produced in another country that crosses your border and comes into your country, and you hit it with a tax as it crosses the border. It's like being hit with a fine when you drive from Massachusetts to Connecticut. I mean, we don't have that, but you suppose someone was there and you had to pay $5 to enter, that would be, that's all this is. It's a tax. You can't bring that car or that bottle of wine or whatever it is that's coming in from out of the country into America without paying this tax, which is called a tariff. All countries manipulate their foreign trade. This is a process as old as capitalism, if not older. Capitalists who have problems go to their government and say, help us. And one of the ways a government helps a company, by the way, why does a, a politician do that? Um, so he gets money. It can be a bribe. It can be a donation to his favorite charity. It can be a contribution to his political campaign. It can be, who knows? As many as you can imagine. So the politician wants to get the support. So he does something. What is it the, the business, it's usually businesses, what do they want? They want help. One of the classic things they want is suppose 
foreigners have figured out how to produce what an American company produces, but they either do it at a lower price or they do it at better quality. Let me pick a random example, automobiles. For a long time, Ford, General Motors, and, and Chrysler were good at what they did. Then German and Japanese and other countries began to figure out they could do this better and cheaper. And they proceeded to do it better and cheaper. And Americans, not so surprisingly, uh, said, ooh, I'd rather spend less for something better. Bye-bye Chevy, bye-bye Ford, etc., etc." Ford and Chevy went to the government and said, help us. Now, of course, they can't say when they go, please help us because we're so inefficient we can't produce a car to save our lives. <laughs> this doesn't sound right. So instead, the argument is, they're cheating. Huh? Yes, they're cheating. They did something, can you believe it, wrong. Something we <laughs> would never do because we don't play by these nasty rules. So we deserve help to offset their cheating. One help you get is a tariff. So let's suppose the, the Toyota comes in $1,000 less than the equivalent Ford. You slap a tariff of $2,000 a car. Now the Toyota costs 2,000 more than it did. The Ford is now cheaper rather than more expensive. And we all drop the Toyotas and buy the Ford, assuming we don't care about the quality of the car. Has the United States done that? Yes. Always. Now? Oh, yeah. Now. Because that's included in always. <laughs> Every country does this sort of thing. Let me give you the example, the best example I, I think of all the time these days. Light trucks. You know, Americans are in love with those little pickup trucks. Large numbers of particularly male persons <laughs> seem to get um, testosterone boosts by being in a little truck rather than in a simple car. It, it does wonders for them. I don't want to take away anything. Obviously, I'm doing that. Um, <laughs> so foreigners, it turns out, can make better trucks than we can and cheaper, just like they can make better cars and cheaper than we do. So back in 1960, 62, we put a tariff on light trucks, 25%. It's been in effect since then. Is it in effect now? Mm-hmm. Tariffs? Suddenly, Mr. Trump discovers tariffs. They're cheating. Who's cheating? Everybody cheats. And it isn't just tariffs. There are other ways. When the uh, Japanese cars first came in in a big way in the 1960s and 70s, the United States went to J Japan and threatened them and said, you, you can't send more than a certain number. That's called a quota system. You can send up to 200,000 cars, but not one beyond that. We don't care what the price is. So you have a cheap, good car, fine. You can that, Those were the days where if you wanted to buy a Honda, you went to a Honda dealer, you gave them your name, and you were put on a waiting list, and if you were lucky, by next Christmas, they'd call you up because you couldn't get them. Everyone knew they were better, but they had a quota. So the United States is not some naive, you didn't make a good deal. Mr. Trump is going to do a good deal, make a stop. This is, if you believe that, then you believe that if you buy that certain kind of soap and use it, your sex life will be transformed. <laughs> right? 
they, you know that when they tell you that, they just want you to buy this soap. The rest of it is bullshit. That's what this is. This, this is political theater. All the rest of it is nonsense. And the same applies to the immigration issue. Don't be fooled by this. Over the last few years, immigration in the United States, two facts, which I'm sure many of you don't know. What are the two countries that send the most immigrants to the United States in the recent years? China and India. What's in the news all the time? Hispanic. It's as if our immigration, it's as if Mexico, bullshit. It's not that. It's not that. That's theater, folks. It's all theater. How many of you have seen the movie Wag the Dog? That's what you're watching. This is a made-for-your-distraction soap opera with the children and the parents and the others. What? This has got nothing to do with This will not change anything in the American economy. Nothing. Not only that, the few places where this was going to make any difference are already busy working around it. The farmers who need the cheap labor to pick, they're already working a deal with the Trump administration to get special short-term laborers, foreign students. They're figuring it out. By the way, including immigrants who will come in now under a new name. This is childish, this stuff. I'm going to make America for Americans. Every European leader is toying with this. If you're interested, you want to see even more extreme than America, Hungary, Poland, other countries. Part of the Brexit in England was an anti-immigrant kind of blame the... It's as old as Methuselah, this stuff. This is called scapegoating. It has nothing to do with the issue. The whole point of it is to distract you from the issue. Get all excited about the immigrants. Help them because, you know, we're a country built out of immigrants. Yeah, we are. Who cares? To be honest about it, do you? It's like uh, Melania's jacket there. Do you really care? They understand it. This is theater. This is to get you all excited, to make believe. While he is holding back Hispanic immigration, the Chinese and the Indians are the ones that are making the immigration real in this country. But it doesn't say a word about them because it's not politically advantageous to him. That's what this is about. It's so important that you understand. But the last thing again, it can spin out of control. Let me just give you one example of how it can be done. The second most important economic power in the world today is China. Nobody else is close. The Chinese have developed their economic well-being, their explosive growth. Faster, the Chinese went from a poor backward country to a modern economic power in 30 years. Nobody has ever done that before. It took England three centuries. It took the United States two. They did it in 30 years. Now, that takes a lot out of people. They moved 300 million people from the countryside to the city. A traumatic change of life for people that takes a long time to digest and process. China is a society in turmoil. It couldn't possibly be 
other than that, given what's happened to them. Well, they built their economic success out of exports. They became the place that produced for the rest of the world. They could produce better and cheaper, and that was their success. That's why we all, you know, you're all wearing clothing from there, and your appliances come from everything else, everything else. And now they've moved up the technology chain. They've gotten more and more proficient. They can do more and more fancy, technologically advanced stuff, etc., etc. But they're still heavily dependent on exports. If the United States' behavior, whether it's through tariffs or anything else, seriously cripples, diminishes their ability to export, Nobody knows what's going to happen. Maybe they'll work out an alternative. Maybe there'll be a deal between China, Russia, and Europe, and it'll be realigned, and we will become the backwater of the world. And that will affect all of us in very profound ways. That's one, that's one possibility. The other possibility is that Chinese will do it alone. Amazing, but they might. They've been working really hard the last 10 years to reorient their economy away from exports towards domestic. They've raised the wages of their workers spectacularly. I, I tell American audiences, they don't believe me, but do the, you do the research. American wages have been stagnant for the last 25 years. Wages in China have gone up six times. Do you understand? Their working class is well paid now. By their standards historically, Unbelievable. No one is going to make a revolution in Russia, in China anytime soon based on their economic experience. That's a Western risk, not there. So they may pull it off. But if they can't, if they can't sell their exports, then there's no way to keep those people who have moved from the country, 300, 400 million, to the cities. You can't keep them working. And if you can't keep them working, no one knows what they will do. But they will probably turn against their own government. Where else are they going to go? Or they may try to solve their problems in war. Just like Mr. Trump, if all else begins to fail, if the tweeting doesn't work, we're going to have a patriotic... You can imagine. I mean, look at the act two days ago of pardoning the people who were shooting at the American... Uh, people in Oregon. I mean, you know, whoa. He's trying to shore up the supports he has in that part of the population. But these things can spiral into war. And then you and I will all face the same kind of issue other countries have faced. At a certain point, the Italian people figured out that this crazy Mussolini was taking them into the, into the death camp, or Hitler or Franco, or Salazar in Portugal, or any one of a hundred others. The idea that that can't happen here, that we can't be looking at Mr. Trump and saying, are we going to go down with the ship as he thinks it? Right now, no, he's sitting there and boasting and yelling and screaming. He's got his game. All right, the first question, right on target. What do you think the next economic bubble will burst? Well... I'm not going to answer that question, partly because I don't believe in predicting the future. It hasn't worked out real well. Um, if you go to a country fair and you ask the fortune teller there who you'll be sleeping with next week, 
and, and of course she gives you an answer or he gives you an answer, you know that that's an amusement. If you start getting anxiety ridden because you don't want to sleep with that person, you've misunderstood the experience here. This, you're not to take it literally, it's an amusement. Predicting is an amusement. I, I don't do it. My colleagues in economics do it. And the reason they do it is because it is extremely well paid. American, particularly Americans, but Europeans too, but particularly Americans, especially if they are in a position of importance in a corporation, are constantly required to make decisions. Do we invest in this? Do we expand over there? And they're terrified about making those decisions because deep down they know that they have no idea if that's a good idea or not. So what are they going to do? They're fearful because if they make a decision, which their the job requires, and it turns out to be bad, they risk being fired. And they figured out a way out of this dilemma. Hire an economist, preferably one who has pedigrees after his or her name, and get them to write you a report explaining why the best decision you can make is whatever that executive has decided to do. That way, if it turns into a disaster, the executive can say, yeah, 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 uh, it's not just me, it wasn't just my, I went out and I got the expert advice. It's a job-saving mechanism. Nobody believes in this. Not the executive who pays for it, nor the economist, unless they're really deluded, who makes money, good money, doing this. Much better paid than being a professor. So, having said that, the financial press is full of predictions of collapse, particularly in the last month. It started in May, got really serious, it already began in, in January, but it got really serious since May, and in the last few weeks, uh, Morgan Stanley, Citibank are out with statements saying to their clients, sell your stocks, get out. It's terrible. The level, and here's the basic argument, the level of debt in this society is out of control. Corporations have loaded up on debt because we've had these artificially low interest rates, right? Because of the, the economy started to collapse with the dot-com bubble in 2000, then compounded by the crash in 2008. The Federal Reserve came in, as I assume most of you know, and dropped interest rates to historic lows. That's why if you have a savings account, you know, you look there and each quarter you get 82 cents. You know, when you used to get dollars, that's because the interest rates are low. Well, for you, it's bad news. Who cares about you? For corporations, it's party time. It means they can go and borrow limitless amounts of money at very, very low interest rates. A good bit of the stock buyback is done with borrowed money. The company borrows money at half a percent, goes in with that money and buys its own shares, drives up the price of the shares, and says to the world, look how good our company is doing. This is a company that's now in debt way more than it was before. So corporate debt at record levels. We've never seen it before. Government debt. At record levels, we've never seen it before. And now going up because the tax cut of December is meaning the government has much less revenue and they increased government spending to keep the Democrats from making a revolt. And so we have growing government debt and now the consumer debt is taking off because 
people are at that juncture. They can't anymore solve their financial problems any other way. They were still reacting from the collapse in, in before by holding back, but now they can't. They've held back long enough. That's why people are taking crappy jobs at low income. You know, if you get unemployed, you get unemployment insurance for a while. And when that runs out, you know, you rely on your savings. And when those run out, you rely on your, your family and your relatives and your friends. And when that runs out, uh, being a greeter at Walmart looks less horrible than it did last week. Because you don't want to have that scene with your cousin one more time. It's just too hard. So you work. You work at a crappy job. You work with no benefits. You work all the rest of it. So when is the next one coming? Nobody knows. But this is an economy that is living on borrowed time. Mr. Trump, in December, did a classic Keynesian move. He cut the taxes, so the money coming into the government is much less, so all these companies have money to spend, and he increased government spending. How do you do that? You have less money coming in, and more going out. And the answer is, you borrow it from anyone in the world who's willing to lend you. And because the world capitalism is very shaky, a lot of people around the world are very nervous, and they bring their money here. So it works. The United States collects the savings from around the world, allowing the government to play this game. Of course, this wouldn't work if the rest of the world said, <laughs> no more. What's the country, the number one country in the world that we owe money to as Americans? What, what is the country that has given the United States the most of its savings as a loan? People's Republic of China. And if Mr. Trump pisses them off enough, they will unload that. They'll stop lending here, and they will sell all those treasury bonds they have. And when you sell them, you drive down the price because you're unloading them. And when the price goes down, the interest rates go up. That's the way this is done. And then we will all be sitting here one day having read in the newspaper that our credit card is now going to cost us $15 more a month than it did last week. That our plan to buy a house is over because the mortgage is unaffordable. And we can't get that car because it's now out of reach with the interest rates that we have to pay. The, the Chinese have all kinds of measures. They don't want to do that. They don't want to do that because it disrupts them. But they're also not going to sit there and be the patsy who takes the entire cost of Mr. Trump's political ambitions. Not going to happen. Last question we have time for. Um, Okay, I've answered some of them. Um, look, the, the, the question here about trade unions, it's always a delicate question. I, I've been a member of unions all my life. I support unions. I believe in them and all the rest. On the other hand, I can't pretend that what happened didn't happen. The labor movement has not been what it once was. Not even close. And while it remains a very important part of any hope for change, it is very quiet. You know, my family is partly French, so I follow things that happen in France. Several months ago, the public employees in France who run the 
railway system, it's, uh, the railway system is a public system, decided that they weren't getting a proper contract. And so they went on strike. And they've been on strike, on and off now, for the whole period. And all kinds of other French unions and working people support them. And it puts a very difficult situation on Mr. Macaroon. <laughs> so he has a hard time. Um, that's his name. I, I take liberties with his name. Um, unions have to fight or else they die. I mean, I think that's the lesson from the labor movement's history. And they've been hesitant to fight, and therefore they've done a lot of dying. Um, it's extraordinary that a government, a right-wing government like Mr. Trump, who is more right-wing than Mr. Macaroon in France, has gotten no, nothing from the labor movement. No demonstrations, no marches. What? No big event, nothing to galvanize the American people, many of whom don't like Mr. Trump, but could use some leadership about how to deal with it. Lots of social movements that are used to working with labor and getting help from labor uh, can't these days. Uh, it makes one wonder, and I don't mean to be pessimistic, but it makes one wonder that there may be periods of history when everything you had has to die before the next thing can grow. You know, it's what farmers sometimes do when they burn the fields. You know, they, they burn everything because somehow removing all the weeds and removing all the plants and seasoning the ground with the ashes that are a kind of fertilizer allows things to grow which couldn't have grown if you didn't clear the land. Maybe there's some more still that the American left has to go through in order to get over its hesitancies of being socially critical. Look, capitalism? Yeah, like, like making capitalism the issue. Like saying, this system doesn't work for the majority of people. Look, there are some straws in the wind. That young lady in Queens, her victory. Um, her victory is a extraordinary statement. A woman who was willing to say, I'm a socialist, and make it clear, and make it unambiguous, and not shy away from it, uh, to defeat a, a, an old, you know, establishment uh, Democrat, who I, I understand was in line to replace uh, Nancy Pelosi as the, in, in, the, in the House, which is a very high position. Um, these are signs. These are signs, if nothing else, that you don't have to be scared. Let me close with that and be very personal. I travel around the country. I do a lot of speaking. That's one of the reasons we've had to go to a, every other month rather than every month for these events. And I speak openly since at my age, what's the point of hesitating? <laughs> I speak openly about why capitalism is a problem and socialism or some kind of alternative system is the answer. And I'm here to tell you, this country has changed, not just Mr. Trump's way, but the other way too. The audiences that I talk to, which come from all different parts of the country and all different kinds of backgrounds, 
are perfectly comfortable hearing what's wrong with capitalism and hearing about how we need fundamental changes, that the businesses have to be run by and for the people, not by a small number of investors. All of that's got to go. We have to democratize the enterprise. They get all that. They're really interested in discussing the details and figuring out how we get there. But the proposition that capitalism is something they don't want to support anymore, that's not a problem anymore. Up until seven years ago, that was a problem in this country. Most of you that are older know that. You grew up as I did in a society that couldn't, laugh, couldn't hear it. I got to tell you, that's over. You don't have to do that. If, if we don't run around now and talk about it, we will have missed an unbelievable historical moment. We can do that now. The government is busy bothering Muslims. They're not bothering us. And that's a big mistake on their part. I hope they do not understand. So far, I'm comforted that they seem to have no clue. Thank you very much, and I hope I see you again. <laughs>